Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to You out of need, out of need to hear from You, to learn from You, to learn about You. And probably most of us have had a busy week and now a busy start to this week, and we're already transitioning in our minds to the things we must do tomorrow and getting up things on the to-do list for this week, and yet you have us here, so for these next moments together, we pray that you would teach us something we didn't know, and you would strengthen our faith, you would encourage us, you would train us in righteousness, you would help us to be full of grace and truth, and to worship you in spirit and truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through a series on Sunday morning on the doctrine of Scripture, looking at different texts and unpacking that to understand what the Bible says about itself. And in the evening, as Ben started last week, we are doing several weeks a bit more apologetic. Apologetic doesn't mean we say sorry for the sermon. It means how do we answer objections that you may have or objections that you may find from others in coming to God's Word. This morning, I gave a number of quotes from some church fathers and theologians about the inspiration of Scripture, and I gave this one from Augustine. He said, I have learned to ascribe to those books which are of the canonical rank and only to them such reverence and honor that I firmly believe that no single error due to the author is found in any of them. And that is a striking statement of his confidence in the inerrant Word of God. But you may have noticed this language. I've learned to ascribe to those books which are of the canonical rank. The word canon means a rule, a standard, a measuring stick, and when it's used in relationship to Scripture, it means those books that have been included into and have been recognized as the authoritative Word of God. This morning, as we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16, you heard Paul say to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture. The question that you may have in your mind and the question that may be raised to you is, okay, all Scripture, yep, I believe it, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now tell me, how do we know what are the Scriptures? Okay, Augustine, you said that no error can come from any of the books that are part of the canonical rank. Well, which books are they? The Bible, as you know, is a single book made up of many books. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. Together, these 66 books in our Protestant Bibles make up the Christian Scriptures. This collection of authoritative books is called a canon, a fixed rule, a standard. Just so you may have an English literature, here are the books that are part of our canon. Well, this is even one step further than that. Here are the, the books that make up the inspired canon of Scripture. But the question that may be in your mind or may be raised to you at some point is, well, then how do we know which are those books that belong in the canon? So we have 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament. Who's to say there shouldn't be 26 or 29 or 30? Or maybe we have uh, two of the right Gospels and two of the wrong Gospels. I'm not saying that you ought to think always about this. Some of you have perhaps never thought about this, and that's okay. And yet, it's important in defending the faith, and it's important so that we don't freak out in our own faith, because whether you hear it in a class, or you read it in a book, or you see it in the media, this is all around us. You just have to read the Da Vinci Code, or watch the movie, and you have this in the sort of air that you breathe, this suspicion 
about the canon of Scripture. And so, you can see all around us other gospels thrown at us, other books, and it can seem overwhelming. And the narrative that gets passed down is that, sure, you Christians have your Bible, but you just decided that four centuries later at a council or something, and you pushed aside the, the Scriptures that you didn't like, the ones that seemed unorthodox, but what really is orthodoxy except history written by the winners? And so there really was no orthodoxy. The Christians sort of strong-armed this canon, and who's to say that the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or the secret infancy gospel of James or the apocalypse of Peter or any number of books. Who's to say that these aren't a part of your Scriptures? Isn't it all just sort of arbitrary? You Christians just kind of had a vote and, okay, who thinks Jesus is God? Okay, and who wants Matthew? You do? Any, any other takers? And it's presented as if it was a very crude and crass way in which we came to the canon. A number of scholars of more liberal bent have pointed out this potential problem, especially with Protestant Christianity. One famous scholar said the canon is the Achilles heel of Protestantism. Or to put it in a different way, what do, good does it do if you have an infallible collection of books if your collection is fallible? Yeah, you got these scriptures, you got these books, and all scripture is inspired, but how do you know which books belong to scripture? I want to try to answer three questions tonight related to the canon. Three questions. If you're, more, if you're really interested in this, there is a lot of literature that has come out in the last five or ten years on the heels of Da Vinci Code and some of these other things. This is a book that just came out in the last month or so. Uh, Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. He's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. This is a very good book. I warn you, it is one of those books where uh, on a number of pages the print is this and then the footnotes are like this, so it's not for the faint of heart, but there are other even more accessible books. Here are the three questions I want us to consider, and they will go from the simplest to the most complex and from the least controversial to the most debated so, number one, how did we come to get our present canon? Number two, should we even have a canon? And number three, how can we know the right books are in the biblical canon? Those are the three questions I want to try to answer. So, number one, how did we come to get our present canon? This is the simplest because it has to do with history and a number of points of history which are not disputed, though some are. Let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is actually quite a bit more straightforward than the New Testament. When people talk about the question of canon, they're usually thinking of the New Testament. The Old Testament, we know that Jesus and the apostles recognize the inspiration and authority of the Old Testament. This is all over the New Testament, the way in which they uh, affirm that God spoke, the Holy Spirit spoke. These were the utterances of God. So they recognized the authority of the Old Testament, what they would have known as their, their Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Hebrew Scriptures consisted of 39 books, the 39 books that we call the Old Testament. Some of them were ordered differently, maybe some were put together, counted differently, but those same books now, in 90 A.D., so this is actually in the New Testament time, there was a council of Jamnia, which at least had some final role in uh, giving the ratification for the Old Testament canon for the Jews. Now, it used to be that people thought it wasn't until A.D. 90 that the Jews really had their Scripture solidified, but now scholars know that this was already f well established, and it was only with this council that it finally sort of got written down. So on one level, there's nothing too controversial because we know the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used, and it contained the same books that we have in our Old Testament, and Jesus recognized this. And so for Christians, we say, well, Jesus thought it was good, then that's going to be a good canon for me. Now, some of you may be aware that Roman Catholics have 
a number of other books in the Old Testament canon, what are called the Apocrypha. These include Tobit, Judith, a Greek version of Esther, the Wisdom of Solomon, a book called Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, also called the Wisdom of Jesus, son of Sirach, different Jesus, Baruch, the Letter of Jeremiah, the Prayer of Azariah, a Song of the Three Jews, that's one book, Prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Jews, Susanna, a book called Bell and the Dragon, First and Second Maccabees, First and Second Esdras, the Prayer of Manasseh. So there are a number of other books that would be included in the Catholic canon. And the Greek Orthodox also include Third and Fourth Maccabees and Psalm 151, one more psalm. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the simplest answer is to say that these books were not in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, why then would these other traditions include them if they weren't in the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, they were in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and included in the Septuagint. And then Jerome, who was one of the most important church fathers, translated the Apocrypha and included them in the Vulgate. The Vulgate was the Latin translation from the 4th or 5th century, 5th century, and became the basis for the Roman Catholic Church for over a millennia. In fact, many would still read in Latin the Vulgate, so this was a very influential translation. And Jerome, when he included the Apocrypha in his translation, made a notation that these books were of a different class than the others and weren't to be considered on the same level as the rest of the Old Testament. But over time, copiers were not as careful to include Jerome's distinctions, and so the readers of the Latin Bible saw no difference between the two sets. And so when the Reformers who said, we need to go back to antiquity, we need to go back to the original, to, it's not good enough to just know Latin, we want to go back to the Greek and the Hebrew because the Bible wasn't written in Latin, that's when the Reformers said the Apocrypha is not, should not be a part of the inspired Old Testament, and it wasn't for the first century Jews. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament, how did we come to have this canon? Turn to a few scriptures that you've seen before. Second Peter chapter three sixteen. Second Peter three sixteen. Peter says in verse fifteen, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. As they do the other scriptures. So already the apostle Peter is recognizing that Paul's letters are to be counted among the Scriptures. And you notice he doesn't argue for it. This is not a point of controversy. This is something he can throw in as an aside because everyone recognized and assumed and understood Paul's writings belong to Scripture. So we have this implicit idea that those writings from the apostles and under their authority are coming to us with the weight of Scripture. We see this also if you turn back to 1 Timothy 5, 18. 1 Timothy 5, 18. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, if you have a red-letter Bible like this one I'm reading from, you'll see that the laborer deserves his wages is in red because it is a saying of Jesus. And what's telling here is, again, Paul now can say, the Scripture says, and quote from the Old Testament, don't muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain, and then also lump Scripture with this word from the Gospels, the Lord deserves, the laborer deserves his wages. So again, we see that this assumption that these words and these words are coming together, they're both Scripture. So we have 
a canon that is expanding to embrace not only that from the Old Covenant, but that from the New Covenant, which makes sense that any covenant in Scripture would come with a new set of written stipulations to ratify this covenant. And so that's what we have with these New Testament documents. Say more about that later. If you look at some of the church history, I'll just go through this quickly. There was a man by the name of Papias, Papias in 110 A.D. who made an anecdotal reference to the four Gospels already. The earliest New Testament manuscript, uh, papyrus fragment from the Gospel of John, dates to 120 A.D. By 130 A.D., the four Gospels and the 13 Paul epistles were accepted in various parts of the church. So this is very early on. This is not just that the church, well, it took 400 years and they said, you know what? Paul. Paul's our guy. No, from the very beginning, there was an acceptance. Around 200, scholars aren't sure of this date, but there's a very famous fragment called the, the Muratorian Fragment, and na- named after an Italian scholar over a millennia later who discovered this fragment. But in this, this fragment, this document, is listed canonical Scripture. And this document has the four Gospels, Acts, 13 Pauline epistles, which is Romans through Philemon, First and Second John, Jude, and the Revelation of John. So all books in our New Testament. Then there are four other books that are mentioned with different notations. One is the Epistle to the Laodiceans, which is rejected because it says it's a forgery. Another book is called The Shepherd of Hermas, which he says should be used only in private use and not in public worship. A third book, the Revelation of Peter, which he says some of us think it should not be read in church, so indicating it's disputed. And then the Wisdom of Solomon, which was part of the Old Testament Apocrypha, so it's sort of strange in this list he would mention an Old Testament book, but it seems that he's putting that in there because it too is one of the disputed books in the Scriptures. Origen, another church father in 250 A.D., mentions the four Gospels, Acts, 13 epistles from Paul, 1 Peter, 1 John, and the Revelation from John. He says that the disputed works include Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Letter of Barnabas, the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, and the Gospel of Hebrews. Eusebius in 325 A.D., the first real historian, perhaps after Luke, who detailed the history of the church, he breaks down the books into four categories. First, those that are universally recognized, the four Gospels, Acts, the epistles of Paul, including Hebrews, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. Then he has disputed books, which he says are canonical and are known to most, but still there is some disagreement. And this would be James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. His third category are those that are rejected books, which he says they have some helpful material to varying degrees. They may be orthodox, some of them, but he says they're not to be a part of the canon. And these books would be the Acts of Paul, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and the Gospel of Hebrews. And then he has a fourth category, heretical books, which he says are forgeries and are, quote, altogether wicked and impious. And here he puts the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Matthias, the Acts of Andrew, and the Acts of John. That was 325. Now, 350 A.D., when we have the earliest complete editions of the Bible, what are called Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, because one is in the Vatican and one was discovered on Mount Sinai, and then you Latinize them and they sound confusing. In 367, Athanasius wrote an Easter letter, and here is where the present canon of the New Testament was accepted, at least among the Eastern churches. He says, quote, these 27 books are the fountain of salvation that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take 
away from these, for concerning these the Lord put to shame the Sadducees and said, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures. And He reproved the Jews, saying, Search the Scriptures, for these are they that testify of Me. In 382, at the Synod of Rome, the present canon was accepted in the West, and in the Synod of Carthage in 397, accepted by the entire church. That's the history, and most of those points are not disputed. We'll come back to some of that in a moment, but that's, that's the outline, and that's why when p- if people say, well, it was, it was the fourth century. It was 350, almost 400 years later before you figured out your Bible. That's misleading, but you can see why they would say that, because it was really with Athanasius' letter in 367 that for the first time all of these books written down in one place that we have recognition of. We'll say more about that in a moment. Here's the second question. So that was the first. Second, should we even have a canon? Is, is this, why do we have this? Why do we have a collection of books? Part of what makes Christianity Christian and distinguishes it from most other religions of the world is that we have a fixed canon of Holy Scripture. So a religion like Hinduism would be much more fluid and able to add or subtract and expand for centuries. Or Mormonism, which would, would have new revelations coming to their apostles or to the quorum. So is the New Testament canon even a New Testament idea? One well-known scholar said, quote, Jesus in His teaching is nowhere portrayed as commanding or even sanctioning the production of a written New Testament. The idea of a Christian faith governed by a Christian written Holy Scriptures was not an essential part of the foundation plan of Christianity. Another scholar says, not until the fourth century did the church appear to define and restrict the New Testament collection. So, so do we even have a good reason to have a canon? Let me give you a few reasons why I think we do. Number one, because of the historic evidence of the manuscripts. Now, think with me about this for a moment. There are so many more manuscripts for the New Testament than any other ancient book. I mean, tenfold. There's so many more manuscripts. Part of what this demonstrates is how bookish the early Christian church was and how formative they considered these writings. Why else would you copy? Remember, you you can't just, uh, hey, would, would somebody Xerox a few hundred of these? Would you call the publisher? We need another shipment in. These are the days you have scribes writing out the New Testament by hand, meticulously, having people watch over them. So this is a laborious process to produce manuscripts. And why are there so many of them that we have found even hundreds and thousands of years later? If not, because from the very beginning they saw that these documents will be the foundation of our life together. And there are so many more manuscripts for the canonical books. There are more manuscripts that we have for the Gospel of John than for all the other non-canonical books put together, which says something about their weights and their universality. Very early on, the Gospels themselves were seen as a collection as variations on a theme, as part of a unit. Look, look at Matthew chapter 1. Okay? Just look at the title that's in your Bible. See what it says? We sometimes say, and not being uh, you know, saying you can't speak this way, but say the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, gospel of John, but you notice what it says the gospel according to Matthew. It's a different word. Kata in the Greek means according, does not mean of. There's a reason. It's the gospel. So they knew there's one gospel. There's one story, one message about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, one gospel, and it's according to Matthew and Mark and Luke 
in John. You see the difference between the gospel of? Here's Matthew's. Matthew's presenting his gospel. And Luke, he has another gospel. No, no, no. From the very beginning, the church recognized one gospel, not four, one gospel according to four different sources. There is also this historical curiosity, at least I find it curious, you may find it boring, that the early Christians, if you look at their manuscripts, they showed a preference for what's called a codex over a scroll. So most of, you know, the Hebrew Scriptures would have been in scrolls, and so you, you roll out this big scroll, you fold it up. Well, the Christians, much more than other ancient groups or people, used codices, a codex, which was essentially uh, pieces of parchment laid out like this, and then you sort of fold it together. It's, it's an early precursor to a book, and then you stitch up the sides. It's basically like a book instead of a scroll. And scholars speculate, and I think there's something to this, that one of the reasons Christians were so intent on using these, a codex versus a scroll is because in this codex, you could, mul- you, could, you could put multiple books, so you could have, here's the Gospels, here's Paul's epistles. And also, you know, with scrolls, you would often, you unroll the scroll, and then you stitch on a new part of the scroll, and you just keep adding to it. When you got a book, it's fixed. It's, it's firm. It's got a front. It's got a back. There it is. I want to show you an interesting verse. You may even never have thought of it in this way. If you look at 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul says to Timothy, when you come, chapter 4, verse 13, 2 Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Now, the books, most people figure, are a reference to the scrolls. That, that would be the word, another way to translate it. Bring the scrolls. He's probably thinking of some of his Old Testament Scripture. And then the parchments. And again, we can't know for sure, but this word parchments, membrana, like a, like a membrane, an animal skin membrane, parchments, probably refers to one of these codex books. And Paul, scholars speculate, may be asking to bring the old and the burgeoning New Testament to him. Bring the scrolls, books, and bring the parchments, perhaps the Gospels, perhaps even a collection of his own letters that he was working on or putting together. What we see through all of this is the way in which the early Christian church understood and by this evidence demonstrated that Scriptures were to guide their ministry, and it was a fixed unit. That's one piece of evidence, just the historical evidence of the books and manuscripts. Here's a second piece for why a canon. It is because of the theological nature of apostolic authority. See, really, when scholars talk about, well, it wasn't until the fourth century, it wasn't until the end, until 367, that finally the church closed their canon and restricted their books. That is completely the wrong way to look at it. In fact, from the beginning, they had a closed canon. There was never sort of, now it's wide open, we're taking submissions. Who would like to be in the Bible? Like to submit it? You got something? Okay, you got something. Let's take a look at it. We'll have a vote. We'll get it peer-reviewed. We'll, we'll see how it happens. That's not how it worked. From the very beginning, the, the canon was closed, restricted to those who were apostles or wrote under their authority. So the whole New Testament is written by the apostles or, with a couple exceptions, Luke, who is a companion of Paul, Mark, who learned from Peter, wrote the New Testament. So, the canon was closed and restricted from the beginning only to those who could write from apostolic origins, 
whose books were true to the apostolic teaching and whose works originated with the apostles. So there's a theological nature of the canon. And here's the final reason, which we alluded to earlier. It's because of the covenantal nature of Scripture. We talk about covenants a lot. A covenant is an agreement, and covenants have a certain, a certain pattern to them. There's a, a prologue of history. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And then there are the commands, and then after the commands there are the curses and the blessings. And then there are written documents to testify to the covenant, and they are put away in a safe place like the Ten Commandments were put away in the Ark of the Covenant. So when you have a new covenant now, it is the nature of a covenant that you would have a written record of it. And this by its nature would be something fixed, a closed canon. So l- let me show you something. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, this is in reference to the Mosaic covenant. Chapter 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. That's a very common saying in a covenant document, okay? Here's the covenant. Here's all the stipulations, blessings, everything we talked about. And now, don't you subtract anything from it, and don't you add anything to it. That's what you say with the covenant document. Now, go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Verse 18, last page of the Bible, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. See here, Revelation, the last book in the canon, understands itself to be this covenant document, giving the same sort of stipulation that we saw in the Mosaic Covenant. You don't, you don't add to this, you don't subtract from it. In fact, have you ever considered the ways in which Genesis and Revelation form perfect bookends to our Old and to our New Testaments? that they form these bookends to suggest that the, the New Testament writers understood themselves to be closing the canon. So Genesis begins with the creations of the heavens and the earth. Revelation ends with the recreation of the heavens and the earth. Genesis begins the paradise in the garden. Revelation ends with the paradise of heaven. Genesis begins with the theme of marriage, Adam and Eve. Revelation ends with the great wedding of the Lamb, Revelation 21. Genesis begins with the serpent's deception. Revelation ends in chapter 20 with the serpent's destruction. Genesis begins with a curse being put upon the world. Revelation ends with the curse being lifted. Genesis begins with a description of day and night. Revelation ends with no more need for day or night. Genesis begins with the tree of life. Revelation ends with the tree of life. Genesis begins with God dwelling with His people. Revelation ends with God once again dwelling with His people. If you want to see all the verses, I got that from this book. That the New Testament understood itself to be forming this bookend to the canon. Just like Genesis, now we have Revelation. End of story. God's story. Here's the final question. So we looked at how did we come to get this canon? Why do we have a canon? And now how can we know we have the right books in the canon? Again, in our 10 minutes left here, let me give you three different options that have been presented. And I'm giving you three, you know that the third one is going to be the one I like, okay? So here's the first. How do we know? Because this is really the hardest question. Okay, we understand the history. Okay, yes, we need to have a canon. We get that. Uh, How do we know that we have the right books? One approach is to see that 
the New Testament canon was historically determined. And now these three categories I'm getting from this book I mentioned. Historically determined. So scholars who, who work with canon in this way, they will often say, well, what was the real message of Jesus? What's the canon within a canon? What, what, what seems really true? Or maybe they'll look to historical data to validate the Scriptures as the Word of God. And evidence is as important, as we'll see in a moment, but it's not decisive. When people try to say, well, the canon was simply historically determined, or we can determine historically which are the right books, so much depends, in the end, on the assumptions and the presuppositions of the one evaluating the evidence. You understand that? So, you and I can look at the historical evidence and say, well, yes, it shows that Second Peter should be there and Jude should be there. If you have someone else who's looking at the evidence from a, uh, with, without a supernatural understanding or without a scriptural worldview, they can come to very different conclusions. Who determines the criteria in the first place? This is the, the problem with the historically determined method. Who, who determines what are the criteria? You know, is it who wrote it, uh, who liked it, how long was it, how, how do you determine it? This approach can make it sound like, can give the impression that the church came up with a kind of job description. Okay, we're looking for some books that are inspired, that were written by an apostle, that seem to be orthodox, that a lot of people are into, and then they kind of just took applications. If you've got one of these books, submit them to us, and we'll run through our criteria, and we'll give you a thumbs up or thumbs down and sort of, you know, biblical idol, and we'll just all, you know, have it, and we'll have a vote. Everyone can text in. That's not how it happened. And the historically determined approach and give that impression. More common is the second approach. We're thinking about the question, how do we know we have the right books in the Bible? And the second approach is not historically determined, but community determined. So somehow the church played the decisive role. And so if you're a critic of the church, you might say, look, it was just a power play. It was all political. The church was just trying to squish down opposition, and so they chose the books that they wanted and supported their power. Or on the Catholic side, they would say, well, it was the authoritative magisterium that recognized. This has always been one of the first and most potent objections to Protestant Christianity from Roman Catholics. They will say, okay, you have a Bible, setting aside the Old Testament Apocrypha, just talk about the New Testament. They say, we have the same New Testament. How do you know you have the right New Testament? Do you have an inspired table of contents? And so the Catholic understanding is the church determined, and it's because of the authority of the church that then we can trust the authority of these books and this collection of books. Now, it's not to say that the church did not play a role and God did not use the church. He certainly did. But think about the, the challenge this way. So they say, you don't have an inspired table of contents. How can you know the books? And you got an inspired collection of books, but you don't have an inspired table of contents. We have that with the church. Well, suppose you could present. You, you found that. You said, we do have an inspired table of contents. You know, maybe you say it's, it's the letter from Eusebius or it's the letter from Athanasius or the Muratorian fragment or something. You say, we do have This is an inspired table of contents. I, I would be quite certain that that would not convince our Catholic friends. They would say, well, how do you know that that's the inspired table of contents? And they would push it back until finally you, you would have to say on their thinking that the church, the magisterium, determined the inspired table of contents. So to ask for this inspired table of contents does not really get us anywhere because Roman Catholics and Protestants are operating with two different assumptions which cannot be bridged in this regard. Because no matter, you say, well, I have the table of contents right here, Catholics will say, 
Well, how do you know that unless the church affirms it? So at the end of the day, the defining norm is at some point the church. Built into their assumption is the need for an infallible church to authenticate the canon. Now, the problem is not that the church played a role in it, but that it played the only or the definitive role. If an infallible authority like the Bible requires external authentication, then on what grounds does the church establish its own infallible authority? See, here's what I mean by two different starting points. Either we say, yes, we start with the Scriptures and we believe the Scriptures and the Scriptures authenticate their own authority. Or we start and say, we have the church and we believe the church and the church authenticates its own authority. There are two different starting places. And depending upon your assumptions will determine your conclusions. Which leads to the third category that we'll finish with in this question. How can we know which books are in the canon and if we have the right books? So instead of historically determined or community determined, we should see Scripture as self-authenticating. Self-authenticating. Scripture never gives us the impression that its authority is derivative. Think about this. There is no reason to think that Israel had any infallible revelation from God that helped them select the Old Testament canon. They had no inspired table of contents. And yet, Jesus accepted it and considered it divine. Why? Because the writings proved themselves to be authoritative and inspired. So we accept the the books of the canon not because the church selected them, but because these books imposed themselves upon the church. All throughout the Bible, you never see God's people forming the Word of God. You see the Word of God creating God's people. J.I. Packer said, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity. Newton did not create gravity, but recognized it. Here's an analogy. Suppose a child is, a young child is separated from his family. He's separated for a whole year. He's just a little kid, three, four. After a year, gets reunited with his family, mom, dad, brothers, and sisters. But there's also a bunch of other people around who are wanting to get in and, no, this is my kid, and, no, he's part of our family. And over time, this little child recognizes that's the soup mommy made me. Yes, that's the way, that's the joke my brother always told. That's what my sister looked like in her princess dress. That's what my dad sounded like when he was mad at me. <laughs> what is the child doing? The child's saying, I have, a, I have a list of criteria to determine, and I'm going to choose which one, who will be my mom, who will be my family. No. Child is recognizing you are who you say you are, and you're not. So that the family members are self authenticating. Now, how did the books then authenticate themselves? Well, they showed forth their divine qualities, their apostolic origins, their corporate reception by the church. These are some of the same criteria that the the historically determined approach looks at, except there's a difference here. Instead of saying, here are the criteria, we choose the books, we're saying these are the sorts of things that impose their will such that the church had to recognize that, yes, this indeed is the Word of God. So if you go back to this analogy with the child and his family, The red hair was not the criteria. I'm looking for a sister with red hair. I want to pick one. The red hair was the criteria which caused him to recognize this really is her. 
Now, the objection that you will often hear is that there were so many Gospels floating around. You can read Bart Ehrman's books, Lost Christianities, Lost Scriptures, all these books, and it looks very impressive. And you can look at a table of contents, and it might have 30, 40 different ancient books, and they have the Gospel of this and the Epistle of this. And if you don't know better, you look at this and you say, well, boy, what am I to do? My Christianity really is on shifting sand. Look at all these other books. But what they don't tell you, or at least doesn't get broadcast, is that even Bart Ehrman, famous anti-Christian critic, says, quote, almost all of the lost scriptures of the early Christians were forgeries on this point, scholars of every stripe agree, liberal and conservative, fundamentalist, and atheist. So the media presents this as much more than it seems. We know from the history of the church that the Gospels were accepted very early. The Pauline epistles were accepted very early. If you think back to that history I gave you at the beginning, you notice that almost all of our New Testament was, was never in any kind of dispute. It was always the four Gospels, the epistles, 1 John, 1 Peter. The, the books, there was only a few of them that were disputed, James, 2 Peter, Jude, 2 and 3 John. And yet, when we hear it talked about today, it sounds like this was just wild, wild west, and everyone was just, you know, this church was all about the gospel of Thomas, and this church was all about the gospel of Matthew. There is not a single, single manuscript which puts together the four gospels in any other configuration than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is zero, none that would say, well, our four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Thomas, and Peter. Our four Gospels are… No, they're always those four Gospels. Take you one, just one example, then we'll finish it, just to show you that you have nothing to fear by looking at the evidence. Gospel of Judas. Anybody hear the, the Gospel of Judas? That was… Okay, three people, thanks. Uh, some of you didn't raise your hand. This was all in the news and the gospel of Judas, and maybe this is the real gospel, and the church suppressed it, doesn't it? It makes, it makes for a good story. Judas wrote the bad Judas, and then the church said, we don't want to listen to Judas, and so they, they put his gospel aside. He would give a different take on things. But here's the reality. We have known about the gospel of Judas since around 180 A.D. This is not some new discovery that... We, uh, maybe the document was, but the, uh, the existence of it was not. In this gospel of Judas, Judas is the hero. He betrays Jesus so he can be set free from this evil world and return to his own universe. Now, it's sounding a little different than the gospels. Here's a quote from the gospel of Judas. Now, just think, you, you haven't, you know, most of you haven't been to seminary, you, so you haven't, you know, read a bunch of books on this. Now, just see, just kind of the common sense test. Does this seem like this is in the same orbit of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus said, truly I say to you, for all of them the stars bring matters to completion. When Socles completes the span of times assigned for him, their first star will appear with their generations, and they will finish what they said and they would do. Then they will fornicate in my name and slay their children, and they will do something else in my name, and he will start all over in the 13th eon. A little different. The New Yorker, reporting on this a few years ago, said, "...the finding of the new gospel of Judas, though obviously remarkable as a bit of textual history, no more challenges the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to the basis of American democracy." See, everyone who, who understands this history and these documents recognizes that there is nothing first century about it, there is nothing Jewish about it, that these are clearly second century Gnostic texts which tell us a lot about what second century Gnostics believe and tell us absolutely nothing about what any of the apostles believed. And no one of any stripe anywhere except someone on the internet thinks the Gospel of Judas was written by Judas. So here's the conclusion. 
If you talk to people who have these questions, or you ever wrestle with these questions, or sometime five years from now in school, these questions come up and you think vaguely, didn't pastor say something about this? The most important thing I can say is perhaps this. We have nothing to be afraid of by looking at the evidence. Nothing to be afraid of by looking at the history. Look into it. We must not come to the Scriptures looking to validate them by external criteria, but yet we have nothing to fear by looking at the record of history. And as we come to the Bible, what this whole discussion of the canon should reinforce in our minds is that we all must start somewhere with some basis of knowledge. How do you know what you know? You're going to start with the autonomy of the human self. You're going to start with the perfection of science. You're going to start with the perfection of your human reason. You will all start something, and you will judge everything else by that something. Christians start with the Bible. That's how we know what we know. So, don't be discouraged that you think, well, if I talk to students, if I talk to somebody and they got some question they read from the Da Vinci Code, I'm not going to know what to say. The most important thing you can always do to defend the authority of Scripture is to invite people to read Scripture, to read it. As Charles Spurgeon said famously, he said, one way to convince you that we have a tiger in the cage is to talk to you about what tigers look like, and they have stripes, and they have teeth like this, and, and their tails are shaped like this, and here's a picture of a tiger, and here's a tiger, and this is a tiger. And he said, but the other way to convince you is to open the cage and let the tiger out. And so it is with the Word of God. The sheep know their master's voice. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word we thank you for the men and women who have studied these things in history and can write intelligent books about it. Thank you that we have nothing to fear by looking at facts. And we pray that through these sermons and these Sunday evenings together, you would only strengthen our faith and our conviction in your word not so much because a scholar says so or the history reflects it, but because we unmistakably hear your voice and your spirit testifies to our spirit that this is indeed the Word of God. Amen.